0: Hello and welcome to the latest version of the TriCast. Today, this is Jesse Lair, sitting in for Calf Pope and I'll be talking with my roommate and great friend Evan Strauss. Now Evan is a tour guide here in the city of Melbourne and he actually has quite a extensive story on how he got here and how he came to love the city and the country. So Evan, good morning. Good morning, Jesse. How's it going? Oh yeah, very well. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. Or as Australians say, how you going?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm uh, finally getting used to that.
0: So just to get right to it, I think it'd be great if we started out how you made your journey across the... Pacific Ocean, and ended up in
1: Australia. Yeah, well, I uh, I actually didn't come here from the U.S. directly. I came here from uh, backpacking in Southeast Asia. I was all around the continent for about mm, 10 months, and I had met a lot of backpackers on the road, people from every country in the world, but also a lot of Australians who couldn't speak highly enough about Melbourne and told me it was like a cultural Hub of the world that was full of young people and art and, and beauty and uh, that they said everyone said I would love it uh, and so I had heard about the working holiday visa I had, had some friends who had done it and they just insisted that I that I come check it out and so on a, on somewhat of a whim I, I booked a flight to Melbourne um, could have ended up in Sydney or Auckland or back in the U S. Uh, but yeah, I came here and I just thought I would be in Melbourne for a couple months at the most. And uh, it's been a year and a half.
0: So tell us a little bit about your backpacking trip through Asia. So how long were you gone for? Where did you go? And how did your perspective of the world change from that experience?
1: I would say it was a continuation of the process that started from... Every time I've been to another country outside the U.S. or even traveling in other regions in the U.S. where you meet people from different walks of life and they are just as human as you are and they live just as complicated and interesting and colorful lives as you do and, uh, and you really start to conceive of the human experience as something uh, that everyone goes through. I don't, I don't really think that humans are built to be able to empathize with billions of other humans. We just don't have the hardware for it. So a good way to sort of supplement that biological kind of shortcoming is to actually cross borders, cross oceans, and cross land masses and go meet these people face to face and have interactions that you can't ever plan for. You know, the, the most beautiful moments are things that are complete coincidences, all of serendipity and, and things you couldn't plan for. And then, yeah, you really just start to have your your definition of humanity and your compassion just starts to grow really gradually. So to your first questions, I was gone for 10 months. Um, I just booked a one-way flight and I thought I would be gone for three months or six months. Um, so I. 10 months was like never really in the books and i've kind of rehearsed all the countries i went to in order so i can say them very quickly so so listen up i did hong kong vietnam malaysia thailand laos singapore hong kong again cambodia indonesia south korea myanmar Mm, not necessarily in that order yeah so that was uh fantastic trip really life-changing as well
0: well there you go yeah that's, that's a lot of places that's a lot of the world that most people don't get to see because most people don't leave their hometowns it seems like so that's just a very as you said an eye-opening experience well you, you always had a lot of empathy for other people on a large scale now you know the daily rituals that people get into so that's That's why travel is so great.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that you meet um, on the road, uh, other backpackers, a lot of them are from Europe or Australia or, or from Canada or the U.S., a lot of people s- were surprised to meet an american backpacking because there's so few of them compared to people from europe or from other places in the world and uh, yeah so you end up getting into these discussions about like what is different about american culture that people don't leave and explore and yeah we, we, i came to some interesting realizations about maybe why some of those reasons are and we have a couple ways that the united states is isolated we have a, a huge ocean in either side of us And we have one country up north, one country down south, a lot of which the culture has uh, blended and melded together with American culture. Like we are, Canadians are Americans, Americans are Canadians in a lot of ways, and that goes with Mexico in a lot of ways as well. And so we're just geographically isolated. It is just not as easy to just cross the ocean. I met a guy from the UK, and he was shocked to know that people in the US, that anyone in the US didn't have a passport. He thought, wait, I thought you just get born with a passport because mm-hmm. when you're in the UK, you can just go. Oh, I'm gonna hop over to France and have lunch and then come back. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, people just don't. Re- so you don't really do that in the U.S. If anything, you cross state lines um, because the U.S. is so big compared to somewhere like Europe. So the geography really affects the, the amount that we explore because we maybe we're exploring in and around North America. Um, but we might not necessarily need a passport to do that, so yeah, that kind of contributes to it. And there's a lot of other cultural factors that make it so Americans don't feel compelled to travel as much as uh, people from other parts of the world. Economic and opportunity, um, even the idea of a quote-unquote gap year is something very European-sounding to a lot of Americans, uh, not something that could belong to, to one of us.
0: And that's what I always think, too, about travel. It's just so hard to get out of the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you, it, it's not cheap, right? It's not cheap. And it's a big time commitment. And especially the fact is that you're expected to go to college. Then after you go to college, you're saddled with so much student loan debt that you have to immediately start finding a way into the workforce. Because if you don't find a way into the workforce, then then you might lose your opportunity. And then you'll just screw yourself over for the future. And you won't make as much and you'll just be lost. So it just it makes it for me. I know, especially for me, I didn't know that I would do as much traveling or moving as I actually have. Yeah, you're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> trying I trying to
1: keep in touch. Trying to keep. Yeah, keep you down.
0: <laughs> I figured that when I moved to Chicago, that I'd stay in Chicago. Then when I moved to Orlando, then, okay, that's it. Now I'm just living in Orlando, just living in Florida for the rest of my life. This is fine. Thank God that chapter ended. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, after... T- Three more stops now I'm here in Melbourne. Speaking of Melbourne, so you do you're a tour guide in the city. Yes,
1: yeah. Um maybe people who have visited Melbourne are familiar or, or any big city in the world are familiar with like the free walking tour model. It's sort of been sweeping the world over the last few years. As of a year ago, there was only one free walking tour company here in Melbourne, and the boss and collaborator, um, John O'Sullivan, he is also an American, and he came to Melbourne. He's been here for about five years, on and off, and he came and saw that there was only one of these free walking tour companies. There was an opportunity for um, some competitiveness with that market, and he had some innovative ideas to bring to that market, and so um, he has been hustling his butt off over the last year building this, this company up, uh, and so... I was one of the first guides on the ground floor with John and a, a handful of others, uh, really working through um, how we're giving tours of the city and trying new things, and uh, the business model continues to grow and change, and it's doing really well. So yeah, like a year ago when I was giving tours, it was to five or eight, maybe 10 people, and now we've got consistently groups of 50, 60, 70 every single day. Um, we split those up between several guides, so it's been an exciting, very quick-growing process. And this isn't your first tour as a tour guide. (laughs) Yes, um, that's a good point. Yeah, I've been working as a career tour guide since 2013. So um, I started giving tours on the Alaska Railroad. Uh, Those train tours are all about Alaskan history and a lot of nature. So we saw a lot of moose, (laughs) mountains, rivers, etc. Uh, I moved back to Chicago where we were living together. And um, I worked on the Chicago River giving architectural boat tours I gave over 800 of those tours and now here in Melbourne giving walking tours. So I've given well over a thousand tours. So.
0: And speaking of the Wendell of Boat Tours, you have a little antidote where you got into trouble with our current president.
1: <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I kind of... Forget about this story. Like, this story has so much potential for so much mileage these days yeah. because of the obvious situation we're in. And I, I always... That's such a good, like, cocktail party story, and I just never remember to, to whip it out. So, like, thank you for asking. Here we are. Okay, it's a, it's a bit of a long one. So the boat tours that I uh, gave On the chicago river left from a dock that was at the base of the trump international hotel and tower in chicago which is the second tallest building in the city of chicago Uh, and it's a beautiful structure and um, it was designed by um, by adrian smith who also designed the tallest building in the world that's the burj khalifa in dubai a very talented architect and so the the structure itself is just a stunning um, glass and steel tower but about five years after the building was completed Donald Trump decided to put his name across the front in a, in 20 foot tall letters that are li- light up at night and the building is also on a 45 degree angle with the city grid so anywhere from the east side of the city which is the lake you just look at the skyline at night and there's a giant white lettered Trump that you can see from miles away and that because of that 45 degree angle you can see the sign all the way down uh, from the south side of the city as well so it's like just really really, egregious and it's the only you know big word you can see in the city not only that but like from a design perspective the letters were placed on the facade of the tower you know retroactively uh, uh, like after the fact and so the facade wasn't really built to hold them and so the placing of the letters are they're not spaced properly and if any kind of graphic designer were to look at them they would immediately just like want to jump into the river uh, and drown themselves because it is so horrible how the Letters are spaced, I believe the word is kerning, K-E-R-N. And so it's just like, it's a real eyesore. And then on top of that, the letters are serif fonts. And uh, the building has a lot of like beautiful, Mm. elegant pinstripes. So the serif ends to the the letters just doesn't really match the style. So it's just, all in all, it is a big mess. And I'm not the only one who noticed this. When the sign was being put up, the mayor at the time, Rahm Emanuel, very prominent architectural critics who worked for the Chicago Tribune, John Stewart from The Daily Show. I mean, this is like making the national news about how horrible to this new Trump sign it was going up on the building. And this is also the first few weeks that I started giving tours on Wendella boats. It's like when, when the sign was being put up. So it took them about a week to put each of these letters up. So a very gradual process. Just T, then just TR. And so my boat tours are going past the building. It's the first building on my tour. And I am telling people, you know, this whole spiel about how it's the second tallest building and the style and the design. And after my whole bit, I say, well, you know, after five years of this building being completed, Mr. Donald Trump has decided to put his name across the front. And that will be unsightly because it's such a beautiful structure. Your eyes are now going to be drawn to the letters instead of appreciating the forms and materials and shapes of the design of the building itself. That's as bad of a thing as I ever said about the building, that it will be unsightly. And you better believe there was other architecture guides along the river mm-hmm. and onto the buses and getting walking tours and, you know, and the mayor who were saying way worse things about the sign than I was. But I just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You were
0: one, actually at the sign. Yeah, I was yeah, at, at, the, at the tower. In their dock.
1: Yeah, but um, I, yeah, the boat was passing the tower as I was saying this, and someone in the Trump organization, in the company, ha- happened to be walking along the riverbank and heard me say this thing, about it being quote unsightly. And so like later that week, I got called into the office. And I I thought that we were having um, a meeting about a scheduling issue that I had been experiencing. And so uh, my supervisor said, we really got to talk. This is a big problem. And I said, I know the schedule is really messed up. And she said, No, not about that. About the Trump sign. And uh, we heard reports from the Trump organization that you were speaking ill and disparaging the building to the public and you know because this company i worked with wendella owned dock real estate on the trump towers building the two families uh, the borgstrom family the Wendella, and the trump family um have had years of a relationship in order to secure this real estate opportunity for the boats and so they did not want to piss off the trump family or jeopardize their new dock space so they almost fired me on the spot about this. They said, you're not going to lose your job today, but we're going to have to penalize you and write you up for editorializing the tour. That was the official reprimand. And I was so just like shocked and also angry at this double standard because all the other tour guides were saying similar or worse things. But, you know, when I think about that critique about editorializing the tour, I also said that the building is a stunning addition to our skyline from 2009. And that is also my opinion, that it's stunning. And I mentioned this in our in my meeting with my supervisor, and she said, Oh yes, the person from the Trump organization also said that you said some nice things about the building. So that's totally fine. You can keep saying nice things, just you can't say anything not nice about the building. So I was like, Ah, oh, yes. Uh, censorship, that's the word we're looking yep. for here. Yes, censorship. But yeah, during that meeting I, I found out that whoever had heard me on the riverside had contacted the New York Trump organization who had contacted the head of the Borgstrom family so the point in saying this is that it went all the way up the ladder and I'm not sure which Trump it made it to but one of his sons was in charge of the building at the time so I definitely was prodding at the Trump family I'm pretty proud to have gotten that far unfortunately Uh, I think they got the last laugh (laughs) 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 being the most powerful family on planet earth (laughs) yeah anyway that's my that's my Trump story I pissed off Donald Trump
0: yeah, he, I mean, just imagine if that did get to him, how he would just blow his gasket. Well, I mean, that's the
1: thing. That's why I can maybe even reasonably imagine that it had gotten to him because there was so much press right. about it at the time. And you know he loves that press cycle, you know, knowing that there's all these people, including a company that he was working with in his building that were uh, kind of against him in that. I mean, that that is so textbook Donald Trump being angry about You know, something as silly as that. Uh, And so uh, you can imagine it being really, really petty and trying to get some lowly 22-year-old tour guide fired for saying that the sign was unsightly. He he is that petty, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised. I'd like to imagine that it made it all the way to him. (laughs) Can't be sure, though. I think it did. Let's just imagine it. (laughs)
0: Right. <laughs> we'll edit this out and say, yeah, God all the way to Donald Trump. He yeah. called the Boris family and said, fire him. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that would be that would be great if you tried to say you're fired.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> uh. <laughs> all right. Well then moving on to where sure. you are now as a tour guide in Melbourne. Yeah. So guide us through how you first started creating your tour and what you learned about the city. While on the tour, and then how it compares to what you were doing in America.
1: Sure, Um, my tour here focuses a lot on design, Um, design of urban spaces, design of buildings and architecture, you know, flag design, anything I can really um, can find. And I say this at the beginning of my tour that one of my goals for the tour, for the two and a half hours that I spend with this small group of people, is to start to open their eyes to design because it's literally all around us. So that's why I talk about flag design, building design, streets, everything like that. And I've got a handful of moments where that, that uh, my storytelling really pops and shows something that maybe has been under the nose of the guest for quite a while. And they didn't really realize the implications of the intentionality behind it. And once I kind of reveal it in this dramatic tour guide fashion, then it creates a nice sense of awe. And I really started to build my tour, I guess, based on the skeleton of John's tour, John being the owner of Walks 101. And I kind of built it on the skeleton of that. And that was sort of my basis for then imbuing it with my own personality, my own information, my own passions. And now it's quite unique. It wouldn't look or resemble anything like anyone else's, besides the fact that you visit some of the similar um, locations. But I would say that uh, it was a combination of of great podcasts, uh, Wikipedia, lots of museums, um, talking to other tour guides, also guests that you have on your tours um, often give you some great little fact or a piece of information you can integrate, and then after that it's a process of iteration. I mean, I've done it, you know, 100, 130 times, something like that. And so every single time you do it, it it never, it never arrives at the destination. You're always remolding it and taking it apart and trying new things and going new routes. And so it says, stays fresh um, and exciting. And yeah, yeah, that that emphasis on design and and, and architecture really came out of the fact that Melbourne is a architecturally beautiful city, which is one of the reasons I was really drawn to the city and started to fall in love with it. But that knowledge really came from my tour guiding in Chicago. Um, those Chicago tours were explicitly architecture tours, and so I had to study a lot in order to become a guide there. And so a lot of that knowledge just kind of bleeds over to architecture and design in any city, and then you supplement that with a lot of specific research and, um, and practice, lots of practice. So. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere between being like a, a high school professor and like a stand-up comedian because you really have to engage and entertain and put a show on for these people because you are working for tips, which is a little bit of an atypical thing for a lot of Australians and other foreigners to, to do is to tip. You really have to sell that idea and really have to earn your money sort of uh, putting on a show, entertaining them. And you can really keep their attention and teach them something interesting if you also can put on a little show at the same time.
0: And so what are some of the biggest sites that you hit up when you're giving your tour? And what 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 about their design or their beauty really draws you in? Well,
1: we start the tour in a little park called Gordon Reserve, which is just next to Parliament. It's very easy to find. There's a fountain in the middle of, if anyone listening wants to come on a Walks 101 tour, we leave every day at 11 o'clock from Gordon Reserve. And uh, yeah, it's surrounded by a lot of beautiful old buildings like the Hotel Windsor, the Parliament Building, the Old Treasury Building, St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, and a few others are all visible from that park, so it's a really, uh, and there's a lot of green grass and then palm trees and the the fountain, Uh, it's just a really beautiful place to start. So From there we work our way through some street art and down to the um, bank of the Yarra River, Uh, and then one of the other key places for the tour, for, for me, for my tour, is the intersection Federation Square, Flinders Street Station, and St. Paul's Cathedral. Those are three iconic, massive things to talk about, and you could spend an hour on each of them. I I give them a quick five, ten minutes each, and then we go through some of the laneways that are full of cafes Um, we go through some of the shopping arcades which are stunning in their own way along Burke street uh, so the Burke street mall you get some of that live music and all the the energy of the city down there in the heart of the city and then um, just up swanston uh, another big key point on the tour is the state library but really the grand finale the set piece of my tour is the ned kelly story which happens at the old melbourne jail Um, that's quite a long story so i have people sit down there at the end they kind of made it walking through the whole city and they have a seat and I really try my best to blow their socks off right there right before it's time to uh, come up and pay whatever they think the tour is worth uh, trying to dazzle them a little bit with some some storytelling drama so yeah that's the that's the general skeleton and route of the tour
0: and before you became a tour guide here when you were exploring the city is there anything that you used to see or walk past that now that you now have more of a familiar understanding of it that just it makes you appreciate it way more than you someone normally would when they first get here
1: Yeah that's a great question there's actually I mean there's really countless things that once you see see it once you see the intentionality behind the design or the history connected to the the reason that something is the way it is, you can never unsee it. It just starts to really hold on to that, that logic and, and and you start to sort of see it everywhere. It's almost like a beautiful mind with all these little equations going <laughs> everywhere. Um, but if you're looking for a specific example, um, I think that the, the Shot Tower, which is inside Melbourne Central, is a good example because I remember seeing it for the first time first or second or third time, and just going, oh, that's a really cool building that they have inside this other building. And then, you know, on my tour, or studying for my tour, I realized that they used it to manufacture shot. That's why it's called the shot tower. And, and I didn't even know what shot was. And then, you know, I learned that it is like the tiny little lead balls that you'd find inside a shotgun shell. And that's why it's called a shotgun. And the reason for the tower itself is really interesting because they uh, use that tower to make the shot by uh, melting steel uh, lead into molten lead at the top of the tower and then they would pour that molten lead out through a big sieve or colander and it would fall down the center of the tower about uh, 30 meters or something like that about 100 feet and as the little drops of liquid lead fell through the air the surface tension of the liquid would turn them into little balls or little spheres little droplets and as they fell they would start to cool off from the air and then at the bottom of the tower there was a big vat of water and so they would just drop into the vat of water and then finish cooling and solidify into tiny little balls and then the employees would shovel them out of the water and, and pour them down a plank and make sure that they would roll to the bottom and if they were lumpy or misshapen or flat or something they would just sweep them off the plank and, and then remelt and re-pour them. They could get millions and millions of these little pieces of shot manufactured per hour. So a very ingenious way is using this metal falling through the air. And that's the reason for the tower itself. It's not just like lookout or something to be fancy. It's an actual functional thing that it built up um, to manufacture lead shot. So things like that, I mean, once you start to understand it and you just walk by it, you see the entire thing um, differently than you would otherwise.
0: Yeah, and then when you walk by it, you get a sense of joy out of it too, of appreciation. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You, I mean, these, these little things make you fall in love with the city because you start to understand it and see it in a, in a deeper way. I mean, so many people who come here from the U.S. or Canada or from Europe um, to do a working holiday visa are working in the service industry. They're you know serving, a, a bartending, something like that, um, maybe doing agricultural work which is great, and you can meet lots of interesting people and learn some things about the city, but it's just not the same as what it takes to study the city in, in, in the depth that you need to, to actually become a tour guide here. So, yeah, it really makes you fall in love with that place even more. Mm-hmm. And with that said, I've got a, a special place in my heart for Alaska. I, I love it there, and that goes for Chicago, too. I mean, mm-hmm. Chicago will always have a place in my heart, and it's because like, I learned about them um, and loved them in that deep, deeper way. And yeah. that's, that's the process I'm in right now with Melbourne. I'm absolutely loving it.
0: And I think for me, just the fact that I'm, I've am i been able to experience these cities with you and learn about them through you, that they give me a deeper love and appreciation of the cities as well.
1: Mm. And Well, with that said, I mean, I don't think that you would necessarily be here in Melbourne without me. I'm not sure if you would, but maybe. And then I, I can say for sure that I wouldn't be here without you because... Uh, you know, it's, like, just invaluable to have a, an old friend so far from home. that mm-hmm. makes me feel, you know,
0: yep. like, safe. <laughs> yeah. And then for just our last question, just what about Melbourne as a city is different than the cities from the United States?
1: Oh, that is a good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, Chicago is a good example. We've been touching on it a lot. Uh, there are places in Chicago that if I lived in that city for the rest of my life, I would never visit. Um, there's so much inequality and the uh, access to opportunities is just so imbalanced. And here in Melbourne, I would say that there's a lot less of that inequality. There's still some, you know, fancy rich areas and there's still some, you know, places that are struggling socioeconomically. Um, but that disparity, that, that, that difference between the two is just nowhere near as extreme as you have in the U S um, and it makes it more safe and a more equi- equitable um, place to be. And I think in general, Culturally speaking, Australians have a lot more focus on, on quality of life and on work-life balance. In the U.S., people get a little bit carried away with uh, needing to have like a, almost like a celebrity existence. I mean, it's, kind of, it's kind of a cliche that people relate with uh, life that way, but it's so true. When you come here, people are just happy to have, have what's theirs and to enjoy being alive. And it's really beautiful. It's a, the way it should be in a lot of ways.
0: So thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us today, Evan.
1: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And where can people find your tour?
1: Ah, yes. Uh, Just check out Walks 101. Uh, You can find us anywhere. Google it, uh, TripAdvisor, Facebook. But our tour leaves um, from Gordon Reserve next to Parliament every single day at 11. Maybe get there 10 minutes earlier just so you can... Get registered with us, and it's uh, a pay what you think it's worth. So bring along however much you think uh, the tour is going to be worth. $100. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right, what Jesse said. (laughs) Thanks very much, Jesse. Yep, thank you. Cool.